You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 47. Today, we're asking the question, does individual blame lessen the ability to learn from failure? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So we had a request for to do this episode about blame and learning and Drew, I'm really excited to talk and hear what you've got to say about this topic. So what's today's question and what's the background to the issue? Today's question's all about the relationship between learning and assigning culpability for accidents. Culpability is a funny word. Usually we call it accountability if we agree with it, blame if we don't agree with it, and culpability if we try to sound neutral. And I acknowledge that we're stepping into a really controversial area here where there's a lot of argument back and forth. And so we're going to try to be as neutral as possible and try to pin things down to things that we can discuss empirically. One of the key differences between different approaches to safety is how willing we are to talk about blame. And very often this isn't actually an empirical argument. It's a theoretical ontological argument about whether human error exists, or it's a moral argument about how much control we have over our own actions and how much we should blame individuals versus systems. People try to support that moral and theoretical argument with some fairly practical claims that I think we can test. And the one we're going to talk about today is the claim about whether blame helps or hinders organisational learning. So at one end of the spectrum, we have the idea that any sort of blame is bad for learning. And we often hear people, particularly at the safety two or safety differently end of things, saying that when you allow blame, you create an environment which suppresses reporting, suppresses sharing of information, stops people being free to discuss ideas. And so even the potential for blame discourages what we need to do to learn. And then right at the other end of the spectrum, we've got the belief that individual accountability is necessary for learning. And that's the idea that unless actions have consequences, people don't learn to take the right action. If the actions have got negative consequences, whether it's ourselves or other people, then we learn not to do those actions. And so if there's no accountability, then people are never going to learn the right thing to do. So this debate happens a lot on the internet. It happens a lot on LinkedIn. It happens in lots of books and conferences. David, do you want to take us through the practical consequences for an organization about where you stand in the debate? Yeah, Drew, we're going to cover a fair bit of ground in this episode. We're going to go through institutional logics, we're going to talk about accident causation, sociology, and maybe even a bit of criminology. But practically, when we get into organisations, it's obviously directly relevant for incident investigation. So this idea of individual blame versus learning makes its way into our incident investigation systems about how we explain the cause of incidents and therefore how we think about improvement actions or organisational learning as a result. It makes its way into risk management programs, particularly where we have things like critical controls and life-saving rules, and how we think about situations where risk controls aren't in place or life-saving rules are not followed. It's central to a lot of our approaches in relation to behavioural safety or safety culture, how much we think about individual action and the beliefs and the values and the attention and care of individuals, as opposed to the way that the organisation functions. And you know, we see this language a lot, this blame and, and 
failure and learning language a lot. We see it in the hop literature about systems driving behavior and management response matters and you know blame fixes blame fixes nothing learning is vital so it's really central to a lot of these ideas that are you know increasingly popular in our organizations drew and you know i think to to go ahead a little bit most organizations think they do both most organizations think that look we hold people accountable where it makes sense but we also learn uh, more broadly across our organization and so that's that's sort of what we're going to go through is it one is it the other or or can you do both so drew do you want to talk a little bit about what the safety science landscape looks like in relation to blame and learning? Yeah, this one's kind of interesting because I don't think it's fair to say that in the academic literature, there's a lot of debate about accountability and blame. It's all fairly one-sided, but it's one-sided more as a consensus of the way the academics see things rather than a consensus of evidence. So most of the stuff that's published about blame and accountability and safety uses this claim that blame is bad for learning, but it's really the papers themselves are commentary papers. They're presenting ideas, they're presenting arguments, they're drawing on evidence, but they're not creating that evidence themselves. So there are really very few studies that try to actually answer the question whether blame's bad for learning rather than just assert it. You have lots of people citing other people making the same claim rather than citing direct studies. I mean, if you think about it, it's really a very big question to try to answer all at once. You're drawing a link between something fairly abstract and whether it's good or bad for something as big as learning, which is really hard to measure. So there is a little bit of stuff that's out there. There's some stuff that focuses on the relationship between reporting and investigations and culture. There's some stuff that focuses on measuring reporting. Probably the biggest empirical stuff is there's several examples where there's been a very strict policy shift out in the real world to no blame reporting. That's happened at various times in aviation and in air traffic control. And there've been follow-up studies that show that introducing those sort of no blame reporting systems do increase voluntary reporting. But that's not exactly the same question as whether blame changes learning. That's more a link between a no blame policy and reporting. So we're talking about opposites a lot, Drew, as you know, one or the other. And and so the first paper that I wanted to talk about, um, and I, and I shared with you was was this: what frame we hold when we're looking at problems in our organisation, or when we let's say specifically we look at a safety incident that's occurred. And the paper is titled "A Review of the Literature: Individual Blame versus Organisational Function Logics in Accident Analysis." So the author is uh, Catino from the University of Milan. The paper was published in 2008, Drew, in the Journal of Contingencies and Crisis Management. It sort of divides this debate into two views. So it says that organisations can hold either an organisation function logic, and like you said, Drew, this is generally favoured by scientists looking at accidents, and says that, look, the accident's created broadly by the way that the organisation functions, not the actions of an individual. And the second view is this individual blame logic, which is the one that generally wins out in real life, in broader society and within organisations. And it really goes to say that, you know, there's always someone who's done something that has created the the event and, and that's where the organisation, you know, focuses its efforts to look. Yeah, Catino doesn't actually provide evidence that it's the individual blame logic that wins in real life. But regular listeners might remember episode 39 about where the accident investigations find the root causes. And if you haven't seen that episode, it might be worth listening back to that one if you haven't. 
So in that episode, we talked about the problem of only finding what you can fix. And one of the things we looked at is how often real-world investigations do end up focusing on individuals rather than on systemic uh, findings and changes. Yeah, Drew, this, this paper, it said that there's these two approaches that organisations can take, and then it just gave these these scenarios and examples of certain situations that happen in organisations and sort of described those scenarios and that, let's say, the accident narrative from the two different perspectives. And one of the things that I liked is it, it pulled out a number of assumptions for the individual blame logic. It said if if your organisation is looking to hold an individual accountable for for something that they've done or caused in the business, then there's there's at least five things that you also have to believe if, if that's the approach that you are going to say is going to move the organisation forward. And so I'll just, I'll just go through these, Drew, and, and get your thoughts on them. The first is that people are these free agents. So you know, they can choose safe or unsafe behaviours. And we we see that a lot in sloganing about safety, that safety is a choice that you make, you know, and if you want to work around here, that's the choice that you make. So it says that the people are free agents and they can make that choice. The second is that incidents are caused by a linear sequence of cause and effect events. So something happens, then something else happens, and then a person does something right or wrong, and then there's the incident. The third is that there's, there is actually an individual person who's responsible for the incident so that you can actually isolate out that individual action that is the material and direct result or material and direct contributor to, to what's happened. And then a little bit more abstractly, Drew, um, says that the assumption, the assumption that you hold is this, this idea that it provides a sense of justice, justice so that you've, you're able to move on in an emotionally satisfying way since we know what the problem was and we've been able to provide a proportionate consequence to the individual who acted in a certain way outside the expectations of stakeholders. And then I think fifth is is a you know a bit of a well, I don't know it's a bit off really, but it's it's legally and economically convenient to hold an individual responsible. It means that the people who get to make the decision about what gets done, the the senior managers who probably weren't involved in the incident at the point where the incident occurred, you know, they get to maintain their organizational structures, their rules, their processes, their power systems, and and you know, are able to swiftly move on with their with their own reputation intact and their organization not needing to be changed too dramatically. So, Drew, I think if if organizations say, look, it's it's perfectly appropriate for us to hold individuals accountable, they're sort of the the five things that they also um, would believe to be to hold true as well. Yeah, I'm not certain that all of those sets are necessarily assumptions, but they are things that generally do go together with that worldview. One thing that I think that Catino draws out, which is consistent with the broader academic literature on this topic, is that the same accident can appear objectively different depending on which logic you take. So you can pick a logic, pick a set of assumptions and beliefs, and the accident will make sense under that particular framing. And it would also make sense under the other framing if you chose that point of view. And so really what that means is that there has to be some sort of choice between the two logics up front. You can't let the raw events of the accident somehow objectively tell you which logic you have to follow. So finding individual blame validates and reinforces the current organisations and systems. And finding problems with the organisational systems kind of lets the individual off the hook. So you can't follow down both paths logically and say the individual is to blame and they were working within a broken system. And because our investigations get shaped by these logic, then there's no such thing as a neutral investigation. So we've really got to use something other than the investigation itself 
to make this choice of upfront, are we going to go into this with the willingness to blame individuals, or are we going to go into this with the focus on the organizational functions? Andrew, if people want to read um, a really good example of those that, you know, how an incident can be described in, in the same incident can be described in two very different ways. There's a good paper from 1998 called uh, A Tale of Two Stories, and it's by uh, Cook and Woods and Miller. And they talk about a patient safety incident, you know, in quite some detail from, like it says, you know, two different narrative perspectives. So this is the distinction that we're going to try and test today empirically, Drew. If we choose between these two logics, what price do we pay in relation to learning for allowing, for, for, for looking for individual blame? So the question, does individual blame lessen the ability to learn from failure? And we had to step outside of the safety science literature. So Drew, do you want to introduce the, the paper that we're going to talk about now? So this one's a paper called Antecedents and Consequences of Organisational Silence, an Empirical Investigation. So I always like it when they you know, put into the title exactly what they're doing. The authors of this paper are Maria Vakola and Dmitri Bouridis, both from the University of Economics and Business in Athens. And the paper was published in the Journey, Journal of Employee Relations in 2005. So it's a little bit of an older paper, but it's still reasonably current in terms of the thinking and the evidence. Uh, so give you a little bit of background on this idea of organizational silence. There's this whole research area in organizational studies called employee voice. Employee voice covers a whole range of behaviors that people can do in organizations that are discretionary. So they're not inherently part of your job description. They're not mandatory things you have to do. So they include things like speaking up and reporting problems that you see, putting forward ideas to improve your own work area, uh, joining in and contributing to conversations and debates outside your own work area, you're sort of in the broader business, and offering expertise that isn't part of your current role description. So you haven't been hired because of this expertise, but it's other stuff that you know and you offer it to the organization. So you can be a good employee just working in your own little bubble, doing your job, without any sort of employee voice. But generally speaking, employee voice is good for the organization as a whole. It means that everyone is sort of contributing more than their immediate role description. And so there's a lot of research that tries to discover what encourages and discourages employee voice. And when you don't have employee voice, that's organizational silence. So Drew, I thought this was um, a good paper that you'd found because like we said earlier, this, this idea of individual accountability and blame is quite a really large, um, somewhat abstract concept and trying to link that to organizational learning, which is also another large abstract concept means that we want to talk about something in the middle, which is this idea of um, organizational silence or employee voice, because I think most people involved in this debate or discussion would agree that to have learning, one of the um, key things that we need to have in our organization is the ability for people to speak openly and freely about matters. I mean, people aren't hired to participate in incident investigations if they're involved in an incident, but if we can get them involved in a way that shares their views and ideas openly, then we would form the view that that open and diverse conversation is likely to be an input for organizational learning or a strong input for organizational learning. So that's the, that's the main claim in the literature that for organizational learning to occur, then people need to be able to tell their story. Stakeholders need to openly explore all of these different perspectives um, surrounding, let's say, an incident, and then collectively work together on, you know, how do we fix it and how do we move on? And this has been talked about in the literature as a just culture, a culture of reporting, an open culture. 
you know, or in the case of this study, talk to as either a silence climate or a voice climate as, as two types of climate in the organisation. And I think this paper, you know, quite clearly situates their study within the broader organisational studies literature that says that the withholding of any information and ideas can undermine organisational decision-making, error correction, organisational learning and innovation processes. So Drew, we sort of again see that sometimes we need to go to the organisational studies literature to find these sorts of papers, um, but also the things that we talk about in safety are generally talked about within this these disciplines, you know, decades before probably they become popular in, in safety. So in the 70s, Argus argued that there's really powerful norms and defensive routines within organisations that often prevent employees from saying what they feel or, or they know. And then in in 2000, um, another paper in, that was referred to in this study by Morrison and Milliken said that, you know, when a culture of silence exists, organisation members, so this is your frontline workers, they're caught in this paradox where they know the truth about certain issues and they know the problems, yet they dare not speak that truth to their organisation. So things aren't able to be to be learnt and resolved. Drew, before we get into the actual details of the method in this study, the front part of this paper sort of sort of proposed that silence is an outcome of the manager's attitudes and beliefs. So they really liked, they really want to test this idea of a climate of voice and a climate of silence by, by thinking about how managers in that organization are creating that particular climate. And ironically, when they when they spoke to a number of managers as the first as part of the study, managers believe that they're encouraging employees to speak up, but on the other hand, they're employing all sorts of informal tactics to silence this dissent. So this is where we we get practically into organizations and they say, you know, we'll only hold an individual accountable when it absolutely makes sense for us to do that. And what that actually becomes is some sort of informal tactic to silence a whole lot of voice on a whole lot of matters. So Drew, do you want to talk a little bit about the methodology from this paper? Uh, sure. Just before I go into the exact sort of details of the method, it always fascinates me. And I, I guess this is one reason why employee voice is such a fascinating area of research and why so many people spend time on it, that managers don't know what people aren't telling them. And so we consistently have this phenomenon. It occurs in every organization that the picture managers have of the rest of the organization is not the same as the picture that people lower in the organization have. And that, that should be totally unsurprising. It, it's the result of every single safety climate survey that managers give a different score to the rest of the organization. But despite that consistently, you ask the managers how well they know what's going on. And it's really rare to find a manager who doesn't believe they've got their finger totally on the pulse. That people, of course, speak the truth to them. That, of course, they know what's going on. Despite all this consistent evidence that management very seldom knows exactly what's going on. Uh, somehow, managers believe that people are constantly telling them the truth. So the method in this case, um, and it does very much follow uh, this top-down approach that I'm not entirely comfortable with. I think sort of seeing things purely as management rather than as structural forces is a little bit simplistic. But anyway, that's the approach they took. They're using three scales in a survey within a single company of 677 people. So this is a fairly large sample within the company. It's fairly representative of the people there. And they're surveying people about top management attitudes to silence, supervisors' attitudes to silence and communication opportunities, and employee behaviours in relation to silence. So essentially, they're 
polling everyone to break out these different levels and how the different levels relate to each other. And then they're also testing two sort of outcome variables, organisational commitment and job satisfaction. Uh, I think really just as a way of showing that silence is something that matters more than just for its own sake. David, do you want to speak to the findings? Yeah, Drew, I think the, the findings were maybe not surprising for, for listeners, but there was there was, a, there was a correlation between top management attitudes and supervisor attitudes to silence. So it's, it's, it's essentially that middle and frontline management will look to the, the behaviours and the messages of top management and sort of adopt similar approaches um, at supervisory levels to top management levels. And then there's a correlation between employee silence behaviours and communication opportunities. So what that means is that if there's opportunities for um, employees to, to contribute their voice, if you like, through meetings, processes and, and reporting systems and things like that, then those opportunities will, will correlate with them. But the stronger findings that I, I think, Drew, that are really relevant to us is that the strongest relationship they found was between supervisors' attitudes to silence and employee silence behaviour. Andrew, in one of our earlier episodes, which I don't have the number offhand, when we spoke about the our authority to stop work research, it's probably episode 30 or 40, I guess, we spoke about that it what is really important for a person to put their hand up and stop the job for safety is their immediate supervisor's reaction or how they think their immediate supervisor will react. And this sort of um, is the same finding in relation to employee voice in, in this context as well. So the employees are more influenced by this micro silence climate or voice climate between them and their supervisor, as opposed to the top management or, or these formal communication opportunities. Andrew, like you said, with the outcomes, this organisational studies literature was less concerned with, you know, safety learning um, within businesses and more about organisational commitment and job satisfaction and, and said if, if there's a climate of silence and employees aren't able to um, have their voice, then that correlates with lower, you know, commitment to the business and job satisfaction. So, David, when we put these episodes together, obviously we can really only talk about one or two papers directly. And and so there's probably a lot of trust that's involved in connecting all of the different dots between specifically what this study shows and the question that we're asking in the episode. One of the things that I'm sort of reading between the gaps here that I think some of the other papers that we looked at show is this idea of where the employees get this attitude from in the first place. There's sort of an assumption in this paper that there are particular supervisor behaviours which are encouraging the employees to have that feeling that they can't speak up, that they will be blamed. And then we look at some of the surrounding issue literature, it says what sorts of behaviours you create that. It's things like when individuals do get blamed when things go wrong, uh, when you raise a problem and instead of the supervisors treating that as an organisational problem, they treat you as a problem for raising the problem. And I think even, you know, an extension of that, Drew, is that this you know, when people are, are blaming others, if you like, um, or when people are providing disciplinary consequences to people who have been involved in a, a breach of a rule or, or an incident, it's the supervisor that's delivering that disciplinary consequence to their employee. Now, whether they believe that or not, whether they've been told by a senior manager that they need to hold that person accountable, if you like, or they're the ones who are delivering the message to their teams and to their people as an immediate supervisor. So I think, um, you know, what employees would see is they would see the actions of supervisors. And, and if you look at the actual questions in these surveys, they're things like, I feel that I can say something to my supervisor without there being disciplinary consequences. I, I feel like I'm not at risk of people being individually blamed for things going wrong. 
And so, you know, you wonder where these attitudes come from when you've got formal systems that are assigning that blame and then supervisors, as you say, passing on the message. Um, that's sort of drawing that missing link that's not directly provided in this study, but it's definitely supported by the surrounding literature. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. And this study goes on to talk about all these all these things that are, I suppose, related to this this climate of of silence. Um, and I think just to connect the silence to the blame is, you know, one of the one of the things that the study showed through the questions that they asked in this climate of silence is it is when people um, are fearing consequences of speaking up. Um, or consequences of truth telling, or consequences of, of of making some kind of suggestion, that will contribute to their their climate of silence. So that's where this relationship between blame and and not not speaking up is is related. And there's a whole raft of other things that the authors claim is bad that goes on in the organisation as a result of these climates of silence. So so Drew, based on the findings of this study, there's some important implications that we can discuss. Um, and and then we can sort of maybe move move on into the next interesting conversation that I, I wanted to throw you on the spot about. So I suppose we conclude from this study that top managers and supervisors have to work to create a workplace where people feel safe to express their views, where they're encouraged to offer their ideas, their suggestions. If employees perceive that their managers and more importantly, their supervisors, you know, either aren't interested or will attribute something they say to, you know, blaming them as um, for something they've done then they'll probably choose to remain silent. And, and therefore, if, if our employees are choosing to remain silent, then we can't possibly have the information that we need to for organisational learning. The other interesting one that the authors drew out was that the importance of creating opportunities for speaking up behaviour. So they saw this not just as a negative thing that gets suppressed by management supervisor behaviour, but also as a lack of opportunity. And so they recommend creating communication uh, opportunities such as formal systems uh, for the exchange of information or the transfer of information. And um, David, I guess that's a whole other topic that we could go into is problems with reporting and formal communication systems within organisations. Yeah, absolutely. So so I think we've described this these, these two ends of these spectrums on the way through this episode. We've talked about an individual blame logic, which says, let's look for the individual involved and let's hold them accountable. And then on one hand, we've gone let's look at the way the organization functions and it's not about the individual it's about the, the the system that they're within and then i think what i what i wanted to talk about now is i think many of our listeners and i suspect most organizations would say that they do both so they identify individual accountability where it shows up so where it's obvious to the organization that there is an individual who 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 needs to be held accountable for a certain action you know and they also identify the organizational factors involved. So they kind of work on both. And I think many managers, many safety professionals would say that's the perfect approach to take. We, when it's obvious that we need to blame someone, we blame them. You know, when it's obvious that they, you know, someone else would have made the same mistake in their situation, then it's unfair to blame them and let's look at the system. So Drew, what are your thoughts about this idea that actually the approach organizations should take is somewhere in the middle? First thing I want to say is that Certainly, this has been a central theme in a lot of the original literature that was proposing reforms to the way we investigate accidents. And so there's some really big authors who have sort of tried to take this middle line approach between accountability and no blame. And I think James Reason is one of the ones who sort of very squarely straddled that fence. And early also drew in the early 2000s, Amy Edmondson, and she's very popular now for her work in psychological safety and does amazing stuff. But even she was saying um, 
you know, nearly 20 years ago that, no, 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 there's a Harvard Business Review article where she says that, no, no, you, you it's perfectly fine to have clear and accept or unacceptable behaviours and if people perform those unacceptable behaviours, then they should absolutely be held accountable and that shouldn't get in the way of a psychologically safe workplace. Yeah, and the central argument that they tend to rest on is the idea that it's possible to draw clear lines and those clear lines create predictability, which creates a sense of fairness. And so that's where their version of the idea of just in just culture comes from, is that if people can predict what will happen when they behave in certain ways, when management is behaving predictably, then even if there is blame, it is predictable blame. And the problem is when the blame is not predictable, when the blame is unfair. So that's the sort of argument that they make. But I think there's a much more important question about you set up those sort of systems, what practically happens, given that this stuff that we talked earlier about with Gattini and many others who say that it's what, how you go into the investigation that matters and that basically determines whether you're going to blame an individual or blame the system. And whereas these draw-the-line approaches assume that you can do the investigation first and then decide afterwards which side of the line it falls on. Yeah, and I think, Drew, I mean, we hear someone like Sidney Decker would say that a lot is who gets to draw the line, particularly with these um, just cultures approaches or accountability or culpability models that I think all evolved out of reasons work. And, you know, many organisations today would have these these models that say we do our incident investigation and then the only time we blame someone is after we've gone through this very disciplined process of, of classifying and categorising the, the individual behaviours into you know, willful misconduct or an error or a, you know, a, a simple mistake or a lapse or something. And therefore, we, we attribute a level of blame proportionately to, to the culpability of the individual. So, but I think what I see, Drew, and I, had, I, I tried hard in the empirical literature to see whether there was any support for this. And, you know, there's, there's not a lot, but practically what I see in organisations, at least in my opinion, is that when organisations say that they're doing both, they're really only doing the individual blame thing. Because there's so much, so many broader forces in their organisation that are seeking resolution to accidents and issues, and, and so many power and hierarchical issues that if you enable an approach where an individual can be blamed, then I think that will be the dominant logic in your investigation, unless you really um, don't create the possibility for that. And I think we have actually seen the empirical evidence for this in that there, all of the studies out there that classify the outcomes from instant investigations always fall into this far more blame of individuals and certainly recommendations which show that they are holding individuals to account through training, through corrective actions. And that's consistent even in organisations that have shifted towards these frameworks that supposedly implement the just culture idea of drawing clear lines and only blaming individuals if they have crossed that line. And most of those most of those um, classifications will happen by you know a HR manager and a, and, a, and, a, and another senior manager who will be making those decisions um, out of context of you know of what it's like to to perform the role of the individual that they're they're making those decisions about. And Drew, we're probably getting a little bit too far from the empirical literature and into some of our own our own commentary. But I, as by way of story, I did. I did make an effort in an organisation um, at one point to remove any in individual blame and employment consequences associated with life-saving rules. And you know what the narrative, what I wanted that organisation to take was that if 
any of our employees ever find themselves in a situation where they are working outside of these life-saving rules, then we own that as an organization. And the most important thing at that point in time is to understand everything we can about that situation and what needs to change in the organization as a result. And because of that, we will never hold an individual, we will never blame an individual in any way, or there'll never be any employment consequences in any way for a person found to be um, in breach of a life-saving rule, because it's too important for us not to learn everything we can about that situation. And I just, as much work as we've done in that organization, I couldn't get that narrative across the line. You know, the organization was still of the belief that they could do both. I, I think this is why there is such a difference between the scientific consensus and the practitioner consensus is that those ideas of promising not to blame someone just appear so radical and people are so afraid of finding themselves in a situation where someone desperately does need to be blamed and there's a rule preventing them from blame. Yeah, I I find that really fascinating that our psychological need to make sure that people have consequences can be far greater than our need to make sure that the organization learns from the incident. Even though we might have rhetoric that says otherwise, that's clearly where the psychological forces are. That makes us just way too uncomfortable letting someone get away with something that they clearly should be blamed for. Yeah, so Drew, look, I think, um, I mean, I, I quite enjoyed that, that little ending and, and we're going to go into practical takeaways now. So we've sort of said that, you know, there's these two approaches, individual blame and organizational functions. And what we want to look at is the relationship between this individual blame and learning. And to do that, we presented a, a empirical study about employee voice and employee climate, which said, if you've got blame in your organization, then you are likely to create a climate of silence, which means you are unlikely to get the free and truthful information to make good decisions and learn. So that, that's sort of the narrative that we've been through in, in, in the research. So what, what are the practical takeaways that people should, should take out of this episode? Well, I think the first one is just a straightforward answer to the question, which is on the issue of individual blame. Yes, the weight of evidence suggests that individual blame will lessen your ability to identify and improve opportunities in your, sorry, sorry, to identify your opportunities to improve and to actually do those improvements in your organization. So, you know, yes, individual blame does lessen learning. Uh, The second one is that Completely blameless approaches might not be possible anyway, um, just because of the legal systems that we operate in, the social systems that we operate in, uh, the psychological forces at play in investigation. Third one is that we shouldn't deceive ourselves. You, If we choose to go down a system which has the opportunity to make individuals culpable or accountable or blame, whatever we want to call it for accidents, we need to do that in the understanding that we are directly making a choice which is bad for organizational learning, and we're going to do that anyway. Um, Now, there there may be other good reasons to do it. It may be we want to say, well, the legal system forces us to do it, or our clients force it to do it, or we can't possibly take responsibility for letting someone stay working for us once they've made this mistake. That's all fine. Just don't pretend that you're doing it because it's overall good for learning. We're doing this despite the fact that we know it's going to hurt learning. So Drew, I wanted to throw two more practical suggestions in there um, for individuals. So, so a practical suggestion for safety professionals. So this microclimate between employees and their supervisors doesn't have to exist in the same climate between yourself as a safety professional and the frontline workforce. So finding ways that you can build open communication between the safety department and the workforce, even in the absence of a management and supervisory climate for voice, means that you can still get information um, out of the frontline 
and then find ways to use that in your decision making in the organization and input that into other processes to actually contribute to organizational learning. So sort of getting that information from the frontline in a different way if it's not coming up through the management chain. And the other one was more for supervisors and managers, Drew, and, you know, ideas about what they can do to maybe help promote this climate of voice. So when there's an incident investigation that, that lobs on the table, you know, how they ask questions of the incident investigator and how they facilitate that conversation and, and do they ask about what the individuals did or do they start by asking questions as management, which is something like, you know, what, what could I have done that could have changed this situation as a, as a leader? Um, what resources weren't available in relation to this job that should have been in terms of time, people, equipment? What did we do as an organisation to um, create goal conflicts between cost and, and productivity and, and safety that may have created conditions where people weren't able to work in, in a different way? So, so how the, the managers and supervisors and even the safety professionals show some vulnerability is all in the paper that we discussed today that didn't really talk about, about creating a climate of voice. Yeah, well, one final thing that I'll throw in there, David, is I think this is probably the single most common misunderstanding about safety differently, is the way it encourages us to treat frontline people as the experts in their own work. And people often assume, oh, they're saying that Frontline people are always the experts. And no, that's self-evidently not true. But what is definitely true is that if you treat someone as an expert, if you treat them with that sort of respect, that's what gets them to tell you stuff. And they, you, regardless of whether they're the expert, they will know things that you don't know. And encouraging them to speak by showing them the respect, the deference to expertise is how you encourage that employee voice. Yeah, Drew, I think Edgar Schein would call that humble inquiry. And um, we could probably do a whole episode on, on um, humble inquiry. That might be a fun one to do. So, Drew, invitations for our listeners? So I guess biggest thing is just we're really interested in hearing how people are going with the way they're approaching investigations in their organisations. We know that this is very often an area where safety practitioners do try to improve their own work and do try to improve the way their organisation handles things. And we know that it can be a very frustrating area to try to achieve change. So we're very interested in hearing your own stories about what have you tried to change? What sort of resistance has it met? What sort of successes have you had? Yeah, how, how far have you got with, um, with reducing or, or removing individual blame from some of your sort of safety practices and processes in your organisation? And have you seen any changes to the way that your organisation is able to learn, um, as, as the research might suggest? So, Drew, the question for this week, does individual blame lessen the opportunity to learn from failure? I think you gave an answer at the start of the practical takeaways, but do you want to reinforce your point? Uh, well, I think the answer is yes, and not just because of the simple idea that blame discourages reporting. There's a whole range of mechanisms that blame influences various employee voice attitudes and behaviours, and all of those things that blame suppresses are things that we need in order to be learning organisations. Thanks, Drew. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode as we get pretty close now, Drew, to episode 50. And so send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 